Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I'm a former assistant director and your host. Today, we're talking about American Horror Stories, a seven-episode anthology series that streamed earlier this year via FX on Hulu. It's a spinoff from American Horror Story, the FX series that is currently finishing up its 10th season. At Rotten Tomatoes, the average tomato meter score is 54%, and the critics' consensus reads... American Horror Stories has its moments, but a lack of consistent narrative quality among installments and not enough scares makes for an unsatisfying whole. Of course, here at Below the Line, we're not concerned about what the critics think. My guest today is Eve McCartney, the production designer for the series. Eve, you've been working in the industry since 2008, and some highlights on your resume include another anthology series, Hulu's Into the Dark, and a great period Western film, The Ballad of Lefty Brown. Welcome to Below the Line. Thank you. Happy to be here. Glad you're here, Eve. As a warning to listeners, our conversation today will contain spoilers for American Horror Stories and possibly the first season of American Horror Story, since a couple of episodes in the anthology continue the Murder House storyline. Eve, let's start there. You were not affiliated with the original show, correct? Correct. Yes. Tell me more about your early career and finally leading up to your work on American Horror Stories. So I actually got a bit of a late start to the business. After college, I worked at a local daily newspaper in New York called AM New York, and I laid out the paper and did ads for various uh, small businesses around town. And then I moved on and became an art director at an advertising agency called Agent 16, where we worked on campaigns for RJ Reynolds, um, lots of RJ Reynolds stuff, actually, uh, Virgin, Three Olives Vodka lots of different clients and mainly focused on direct mail, retail signage, and some promotional video shoots and things like that. So it's where I got a little bit of my first taste of production. And it was while I was working at that job that I found an interest in filmmaking and started to delve into that while keeping my full-time job, which was a bit tricky, but a lot of fun. Well, that's fascinating. So this was, uh, you were New York based at the time, is that right? And yes, then- I was in New York. Mm-hmm. Then, so how did you end up making that transition from one career into full-time film? I started, I took a course at SVA about production design just to learn a bit about the organizational side of it and what's required of the job since there were a lot of differences from art directing at an advertising agency. And after that, I just started doing jobs. I was applying for jobs on Craigslist or Media Match or Mandy, met some people, started working with them, continued that. And then I realized to really make a go of it, I was probably going to have to move to Los Angeles. There just wasn't enough work and New York is so expensive. It didn't seem feasible for me to stay there and and really take my shot. So I moved to Los Angeles about six months later. About six months later. So what year is this we're talking about? 2008. 2008. And so now you're working full-time in Los Angeles, but starting at the bottom, you're coming right in as a production designer on low budget. What, what was your path? I booked a film actually at, before I moved called the Seamsters shooting here in LA and it, and it was for the production design job and it was 2008 and it was an indie and it was very small, very small crew, but wonderful filmmakers. These are still my close friends to this day. I spend Thanksgiving with them and uh, we hang out uh, a lot. They're fantastic and they're from all over the country. So it was a great opportunity to meet a bunch of emerging filmmakers So I designed that movie. And after that, I got into a little bit of the lifetime world and I did five or six of those. And then I started doing more indies, ballad and 
future world. And then in between that, I started to art direct as well. And I art directed under Melanie Jones, uh, Message from the King, The Keeping Hours, Lowriders, Hello, My Name is Doris. Got a lot of good experience that way working under her, then moved on, started moving my way up ballad, future world, and then into the dark, and then eventually American Horror Stories. Now talk to me specifically about American Horror Stories. How did you get affiliated with the folks that were doing this and that they were looking for somebody new on the production side front for the anthology? So I was out to lunch with a friend in February on a Saturday, and my agent called and said they wanted to interview me for American Horror Stories. That's how it happened. It was There was no warning. I was shocked and elated and excited. And the very next day I had a Zoom with John Gray, the executive producer, and Lonnie Perse, the director of the first two episodes. And by Monday lunch, I was hired. Wow, that was quick. So it was very quick, very, very quick. They were up against their timelines and wanted to move right away. I started Wednesday. So I, I was hired and I had a day in between and then I was I started. I read online that uh, in late 2020, they were talking about this show and Ryan Murphy did a promotional poster of the series that announced that the first season would be 16 hour long episodes. I'm curious when you came in, was it already a reduced number or were there other factors that led to that decision for the shortened season? So I hadn't seen that post. All the press I read had said it was greenlit as a series for 16 for two seasons. So Ah. it was always going to be 16, but for two seasons, it's unusual that we did seven instead of eight, because you would think it would be eight and eight would make sense. But for whatever reason, we were greenlit for seven. The caveat being that the other, the back nine would be for season two. We always knew there would be 16, but we were never going to do six. We would still be shooting at this point. I mean, we were right up against our delivery date for the seventh episode when we stopped shooting. It aired within a week, I think. Wow. Oh, <laughs> wow. you guys so we're on a tight. I remember those schedules when uh, back when I was working on West Wing, where we would be working on episodes to catch up. That is rarer and rarer these days. You're seeing a lot more completion of series before anything airs. Um, but so this was more old school. Yes. And not exactly sure why it, it happened that way. I do know that throughout the process, we had some events happen that caused us to push or delay or add days. If we were on our original, if the original plan schedule that we would have been long done before the airing, but due to there was some COVID stuff, there was Big Bear, there were things that that came about that caused us to have to add days and push. And so our schedule just kept getting longer and longer and longer. And we started to really back into those dates. Because yes, of course, I mean, we're not thinking about it as much these days, but you're still filming with all the COVID restrictions and issues and testing and possible positives and the consequences of that. Yes. And the scale of the series as well, being what it is and, and who it's for requires a certain level of skill and design and thought that isn't really possible within the template that we were provided. For example, our first episode, our first two episodes, I think we shot them and it was 21 or 22 days. We were supposed to be on an eight day pattern for our episodes. So we blew that right out of the gate. Yeah, so what was required for, <laughs> you know, for the script and, and what was needed, it's what we needed to get it done properly. That was something that right out of the gate pushed us, you know, pretty, pretty far down the road. I think that highlights one of the challenges of working on a show like this, and that is doing an anthology series on a TV budget. Often TV budgets, as you mentioned, have a specific number of days that you're supposed to spend on each hour of of the show that's to air. 
But anthology, you can't invest that time in one episode. You're not using those sets in the future. And so talk to me a little about the difference between a regular series and an anthology series as far as that challenge goes. Well, the main difference is the lack of permanent or reoccurring swing sets because that's a standard on, I mean, unit from West Wing. You had the offices, you had the White House, right? You had all those interiors and they were your permanents. And then you probably had certain apartments that would be there and then they would come back later, your character's apartments. You don't have any of that on an anthology. Every single thing is brand new with a life of its own, with a unique color palette and a certain style driven by the script. So you're really starting from scratch every single time, which is quite challenging, but also as a designer, very exciting for me. I love I love to be able to explore every single time in that way and not be locked into sets that were previously designed or I previously designed and I'm handcuffed not to be able to change them. So I very much enjoy it, but it's pretty nuts to be in the middle of it. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. But this is not your first anthology series. As we mentioned earlier, you did Into the Dark before. Were there differences between that and then what you were faced with on American Horror Stories? Absolutely. The main difference being on Into the Dark, we would take the script and it would get cut down. We would cut stunts or special effects or dialogue or locations, whatever was necessary to get it into our pattern. That was always the way that we made our days and we made our episodes. That is not the reality on a Ryan Murphy show. If anything, we were adding to the scripts as we were prepping them, which just added more to our plates. Um, the last episode I ended up with, I think five sets on stage when we were supposed to have one. Wow. And it's just, that's just, you just roll with it. You just have to. So that was the main difference. I had a lot more support on American Horror Stories than I did on Into the Dark. Another reason why we had to edit. Um, when we came back from COVID to do that series, we were shooting 10 hour days. We were very lean and mean. They wanted to keep the crew as small as possible to keep everybody safe because we were one of the first crews back. And it was, it was great. It made it, it made us all feel very safe and it made the day run pretty smoothly. That said, that was a mainly location-based series with minimal builds and a lot of paintwork and obviously heavy set deck work. So that made it more manageable. The fact that I wasn't required every episode to build two to three sets. Now, I think I might know the answer to this question just from what you've described uh, in the Ryan Murphy universe, if you will. But is it ever possible to have any shortcuts in production design if you know what the shooting plans are going to be? In other words, if you know that certain aspects of a set or a building are going to be done at night or, you know, quick camera work or stunt work or whatever. Is this something that maybe you don't have to have every detail of every set to give it that kind of attention because of the budget and because of the schedule that you could take shortcuts? The answer is not really. You're in a position where if you make a choice like that and then they want to look that direction or they want to, it switches from night to day it puts you in a really precarious position as the designer to have that fall on you. The exception being a good example of this would be the condo bedroom set from the last episode. That was a three wall set. We didn't need the fourth wall. I knew there were two shots in there, two, two scenes, and I knew exactly what the camera was going to do. And we all agreed that that would work for that. So we built a three walled set instead of a four walled set. So that did save a bit on that. The murder house kitchen was also a three walled set. It was quite expensive with all the cabinetry and all the fine details in there. 
we talked about the shops that we needed and we agreed that we could lose this one mall and we really needed the bay window. We needed the kitchen sink wall. We needed the wall with the refrigerator, the island, and that would be enough. So we, we do make those kind of concessions within reason, but it's very minimal the amount of times that we that we did that. Speaking of the murder house, that makes me think of another challenge on this series. And that would be the influence of having a previous production designer's work and how that affects your work coming in new. So I love Mark Worthington. I think he's a genius and he's done five seasons of horror story, um, won Emmys for most of them. So it's very exciting for me to work on something similar to what he's done. And obviously there's a lot of respect to be had for, for him and his designs and what they created in that first season. And my job was to mainly lean into the nostalgia of that first season while cultivating a new vision and a new aesthetic for our new family. And that was a lot of fun. You know, the, the house is the house. Now, when they built it on stage in season one, they added a dining room, which most people don't know. That doesn't exist in the real house. We were in the real house. We were actually using the location. We built the kitchen and we built uh, Violet's bedroom, Scarlett's bedroom. And Eve, let's make a point here for, our, for folks who haven't watched the anthology series yet. Episodes one, two, and seven all continue that murder house storyline, as you said, using the same location and sort of continuing the themes of that. So that's that would be the explicit earlier production design that you are now taking to the next step. But as you mentioned, there's a new family. There's new thought there as far as how that comes together. Absolutely. So there's a new family that moves in. So when we enter the house for the first time, I had the grass cloth up that they had in season one to tie it to the Harmons, but it was their furniture. And they were moving in. So there was no indication of that stuff in the house. It was just the grass cloth, obviously the stained glass. We used some of the old sconces that were up. And then as they start to settle in, we see that stuff change and evolve over time. When we come back for episode two, the lamps are different. Their paint is up instead of the grass cloth. So there are all these things. Another thing I pulled in from the first season, because I loved it so much, was the nightmare mural that exists in the den that in the first season, Connie Britton is pulling down and you get to see it for an episode or so. And then they put up the grass cloth. So in our episode, the dads are pulling down the grass cloth and there's the murder mural. And I just like that time. And you only see bits of it. And I was very specific about what faces I wanted to see and what, what elements. I then brought that back in episode seven when we were in the video game, it seemed like the perfect thing to have in the room to see it in its full glory. So that was a lot of fun. So it was a lot of fun hearkening back to those elements from that first season because the diehard fans love that. And I was always looking for ways to Easter egg things from that first season for the people that would really notice it. There's one hero thing we did through every episode of the series. There was an ashtray that was used in the first season. I believe you saw it mainly in the flashbacks with Gladys in the 60s when they were smoking a lot. So we had that in Scarlett's room. She, I forget she had change or something in it. Michelle put her keys in it in her house in the last episode. In Ball, the totem was in it during the ritual. So we found a way between the prop master and I to put that ashtray in every single episode. Most people wouldn't notice, but for us, it was fun to do that and to kind of tie back to the flagship series. That is a nice Easter egg to go back and look at. I'm going to ask more specific questions, and we're going to discuss some of these episodes in more detail. But before we do, talk to me also about the challenge of coming on to this series with the other episodes that are not tied to specific sets that existed before, 
but certainly there's also a sense of atmosphere or style that American Horror Story has that in some way must be a, a, an influence or a challenge for you on this. The biggest challenge was to stay true to the aesthetic created by the flagship series over all of these seasons. I love the design. I love the atmosphere and the mood and the vibe of all of the seasons. And they're all so different. So stay true to the Ryan Murphy universe and that level of design, which is challenging on this schedule. But I think we did a pretty good job with it. We had to really lean into the script and what the story was and run with it in that direction, which is what horror story does right? Apocalypse had its a certain direction. 1984 had a certain direction. They all had their own mood. This is really just taking that template and instead of having it be over 10 seasons, having it be over one season with all these different episodes. Talk to me about the relationship between locations and production design on an anthology series like this and whether it's different than your movie or other television experience or whether there's a similar relationship project to project. On this series, I worked extremely closely with the location manager. It was so important that we were on the same page about what we needed because our time was so short. That was the biggest challenge on a film. You have a lot more time to source the locations that you need. I would have to go through the selects and make my own selects and whittle it down before we ever showed John or the director. He didn't want to see a ton of stuff. He wanted to see the stuff that I thought was right. So that was really nice. It gave me a lot of control over what locations we were looking at. And once we had a batch that we all agreed on, we would present to Ryan for approval and he would approve all the main locations. And sometimes we had to go back and find additional options. That's just how it works. But the location department was great. They brought a lot of really cool locations to the table for us. And they were great because they would think of things that maybe we didn't think of or present something like, oh, that could be really cool. So it's really fun to create with them. Like I said, prior on features, you you have weeks and weeks to look for these locations. We were looking for locations maybe two weeks out or less from when we needed them. So it was pretty run and gun and we had to nail it very quickly, which just added a lot of pressure to the whole process. But we took it in stride and were able to, to pull it off every time, which was fantastic. Now, in getting into our specific episode discussion, go over one more time with me what the schedule was for your show. You were hired very quickly. How much prep time did you have before you guys were jumping into episode one or two? I started eight weeks out. I had about eight weeks, which was sufficient. It wasn't amazing, but it was, we were ready for the first two. And then because of our extended shooting schedule, that gave me about a month to prep drive-in, but that's where the comfort ends. Once we were into drive-in, I had nine days to get naughty list ready. And we shot that in eight days. So that's all I had for fall. Fall, <laughs> fall, we ended up shooting more days. So I had a little more time, but that's just, it started to roll in a way that was pretty intense, but we did it. We got, we got there every time uh, by the grace of God, we, we were able to do it. <laughs> Let's start with episode one or two. They're titled rubber woman. It's parts one and two. It's a, it's a basically two parts of the story. And this is the one that very explicitly ties in the first season. A new family has moved into murder house. It is known as murder house. It's actually the Rosenheim mansion it was built in the late 1800s. It's stunning, beautiful woodwork and brickwork and stained glass. It's really something to see in person. And the entire time we were shooting, there were a lot of fans. People come all the time when they're not shooting, there's chain link up to keep the fans out. 
because oh, of wow. how many fans come. I mean, every day, the days we were scouting, the days we were shooting, the days we were prepping, there were people across the street watching us taking pictures. So it's, it's a very popular tourist spot. You talked about some of the elements that you brought from the first season. Go a little deeper with me on designing the sets for these two episodes. So we wanted the exterior to be a bit overgrown, not to the level as seen in the very, the opening of the first season where it's I mean, just covered. We didn't want it to that level, but we wanted to show that it was a bit unkempt. We brought in some leaves. We took out any flowering plants. We had to add in all the hedges. None of that exists. And we had to bring in the iconic gate. That was a big one. So we had to have that remade. And luckily we were able to contract the same company that built it for season one. And it's quite beautiful and massive and heavy. And so we, we, we put that in. We brought back the bone wind chime because that's a nice throwback for season one. And I also brought back the yellow rose bushes that Mrs. Harmon tends to in the front yard, just as a nice tie-in. And that then ties into something later that I'll talk about in a bit. So that was the exterior. One little tidbit, the large pine tree in the front yard had been cut down. So we had to add that back in post. <laughs> Because it's, it's, oh, wow. it's such a big part of the, the exterior of that house. It's this beautiful big pine and there was just a stump. So we had to get that and put back in. Now for the interior sets, are you filming in the actual house? You mentioned building out the kitchen and doing some sets. Or are these on a stage somewhere else where you have more control? We used the house. The first season they shot the pilot in the house and then all the other episodes were on stage. So they recreated the house on stage given our timeline and our resources, we needed to actually use the physical house. So we went in, like I had talked about earlier in the den, I, I put up the grass cloth. We moved in the dad's new stuff. We used a lot of the old lamps that were already there. We had the stained glass. We built the kitchen on stage because the kitchen in the house is actually in disrepair. It's kind of crumbling and it's also quite small, which is why they built it that first season. We did the same thing. We built the kitchen again and it matches the house really well the way it was designed. And then, like I spoke to earlier, we built Scarlett's bedroom on stage to give us control. We have that first scene where she's sleeping and rubber man descends from the ceiling. And in order to do that and rig it safely, we needed to be on a, a sound stage. The one major change to that set was we needed a bathroom. There were all these bath scenes with her and Ruby. So I added the bathroom near where Violet's door was. There's this little wall jog, and it seemed like the best place to hide a door that wasn't there in the original series without being super obvious about it. So that's where I added the bathroom. And what's interesting is in the first season, in the pilot, the door to the hallway is in one place, and in the rest of the show, it's in another place. So I had to decide where our closet was going to be and where our, our hallway was going to be. And I went with the pilot. It just felt like the right choice. So when you look at like episode two and onward, the closet is the door to the hallway, <laughs> but in the pilot, <laughs> it matches what we did in our set. So that was fun. I'll talk about Scarlet's room a little bit. It's, it's most important set, I think, given that she's our hero. In the first episode, it's Violet's room. So we did what Mark Worthington and his team did. We had the, the same color. We had all the woodwork, everything matched that, the age level. Then when we come back in episode two, she's transformed it into her space. And that gave me a real opportunity to bring something fresh to it. And I chose this black geometric wallpaper that had these little faces. And she has this emerging bondage fantasy. And she's also a budding psychopath. So it was a great way to illustrate those things in her personality and these traits that were emerging through the use of metaphor in, in her set. And we also did a lot of stuff with butterflies, use of metaphor because of metamorphosis. 
So we had all these little subtle things within her space to allude to her journey and how she was transforming. Also in Murder House, so the den we talked about, we did the grass cloth, a little bit of the mural, and then went to paint. And then by episode two, the dads have fully moved in, very high-end, very tasteful decor, similar to Harmon's, but different, right? We wanted to be in the same lane of taste, but it's updated. It's 10 years later. They're a young, hip, gay couple, and they're house flippers. The study, we wanted to be careful not to have the same layout as Ben Harmon's office in the first season. So we mixed it up a bit. We didn't do a desk in there. We did it more as a seating area. My decorator found this wonderful curved blue velveteen couch that was just such a great centerpiece for the room. And it picked up the colors and the gold lame ceiling. So that was really great. And, and updating the fixtures helped transform the space in such a great way. And it's mm. not something you would notice right away. But when you when you see it the one way with the classic fixtures and then you come in with the updated modern fixtures, it's, it really just jazzes it up in such a nice way. Eve, when you talk about turning the house over from episode one to episode two to reflect the changes that our, our new owners have brought in, are you making these flips at night or are they actually leaving the house to go do some stage work or other episode work and then giving you more time and then coming back to the location? It was pretty complicated. <laughs> we we were able to get them to leave the house to do the big changeover in between episode one and two, which was necessary because we had construction and paintwork and setback. It was multiple teams that needed to get in there to do the changeover. And it would have been very, very difficult on production. I'm not quite remembering what we went and did <laughs> it <was> a while <laughs> ago. It might've been the high school. It might've been Maya's house. We had some other, luckily we had other sets and other locations in play and we were able to schedule something or at the very minimum, we went outside to do exterior work. So that was fantastic. That did not happen on episode seven. We were doing changeovers on the day. We can get to that when we get to that episode, but doing it on the day, it was very tough in, as, in that house. Yeah. As we alluded to earlier, but your schedule is getting tighter and tighter as uh, yeah. these episodes are actually getting ready to air. What about the basement of the house? Is that an actual basement that you guys are working in or are you building some of that somewhere else? In the first two episodes, we shot the practical basement. It's pretty tight down there. It's cavernous and it's like a labyrinth. There are all these rooms and these offshoots, but it's tight with low ceilings. And with COVID, it's tricky. It was pretty uncomfortable at times, I think, for the crew to be down there. Of course, we had to use the room with Tate. So we used the room with the washer and dryer for that. In the Infantata room, there were several rooms we don't see that are down there. But in the, in the seventh episode, I built the basement. The first part when they come down the stairs is in the house. The room where the girls are found in the cage was on stage. I built that. It just would have been too hard to shoot practically in the house. So I made it much bigger than the real room that exists in the location. I can imagine. You know, we're talking about all of this effort to get the murder house, but this is not the only large undertaking of these two episodes. There's also a massive sequence with Halloween night. So that was initially scripted as a Halloween dance at the high school. And about three weeks out from shooting, we got word that it needed to now become the biggest haunt in Los Angeles which was quite a curveball for us. <laughs> so my main task then was to figure out where are we going to shoot this event? Where does it live? Where does it exist? And then beyond that, design it. What does it look like? And what's the scale and the scope? I thought back to the scenesters actually, which we talked about earlier. We shot at the old zoo for one of our scenes and 
I thought about that and I said, wow, that would be really cool. It's very unique. It's very different looking. And of course, Griffith Park has the big haunted hayride, which I've been to. It does in a different part of the park. So I thought, well, this, this could be really cool. I didn't know if they were going to go for it, but luckily they did. And they were excited about it and Ryan signed off on it. So we were off to the races. Now we just needed to figure out how are we doing this? What are we doing? What does it look like? And the main directive from Ryan was it cannot be apple bobbing and games and carving pumpkins and all of the standard tropes. It has to be something cooler and different. So (laughs) I, I looked to the other seasons of Horror Story for inspiration and I found it in Freak Show. It seemed like the right thing, sideshow, freak show. Okay, that's pretty cool. And we can do a lot with that. The main thing we were told is not to repeat any characters from season four. So we couldn't do lobster hands or, you know, the little lady or the bearded woman or any of that. So we had to look outside of that. Luckily, I was able to cultivate a list of freaks that everybody really enjoyed and liked. And so once we had an idea of what they were and what they were going to be, then I started to design their environments. This took place over all the weekends leading up to when we had to start building it. And we only had three days to install it. And that's with one day of basically just getting the stuff up there because it's quite a hike. We had a massive 30-foot cage with fire breathers. (laughs) We had a snake wrangler tattooed woman I put in this vignette where I had almost like a little peep show booth. I built this little peep show booth for her. We had a dead contortionist, kind of like a ring style. And I used cemetery gates with this really cool back panel. And she's in this destroyed chair kind of moving around. And it was a lot of fun to come up with those and think about those. We had a little mini mausoleum and a guy with a turkey vulture. And he was featured pretty heavily in the one shot. And we had a a giant sword swallower. So we had all these different elements and these freaks and performers, ghoulish burlesque dancers. So I used alligator wallpaper for the peep show booth for the snake lady. And like I said before, cemetery fencing and then metal grates for the torture chamber with a bed of nails, trying to lean in, make each thing its own unique little vignette. And at the very end of the event, the bookend was this large skull sculpture, which I had initially concepted for the Halloween dance. It was going to be the entrance to the maze. But when that fell out and it was already sculpted, what are we going to do with this thing? Because once we got to the old zoo, it seemed very smart to have the entrance to the maze be a rock face and the exit be a rock face. It just, it made sense that the Halloween maze would be inside of the caves. So once that happened, I thought, oh, this is the perfect thing. We're going to bookend the event here. It'll be an entrance to a haunted hayride that we never see. We'll continue our lights beyond and people, we can get some movement coming and going. They can light it up and it it worked really well. And then we had all this custom neon made for the hayride and the maze and the do not enter for the exit. That was the event there with the midway. And it was pretty massive and it was a big push for us to get it done. We were really down to the minute we were still doing stuff when actors were on set. Just little detail stuff, but we were still very much there. (laughs) And then the second part of that is the interior maze, which we built on stage. Ah, okay. That I had kind of an idea for because that was part of the Halloween dance at the school. The maze was always present. So that didn't change. The trick was how do I now make the entrance feel like Griffith Park Old Zoo to lead into the original ideas we had. So we rented all these rock faces from Jackson Shrub. They were all painted different and looked different. We had all these different ones and we measured them and took photos and attached them together to create the entrance. 
where Scarlet walks through and we did some old mining lamps. And then from there, we segue into the pallet area, which we turned the pallets a different direction. So it looked more like gel bars. And we had the hands reaching through and things hanging. So she walks through there and then into this black void mannequin kind of high end. It felt like a little bit like a disco. And that's where you first start seeing the people are being killed. And then from there, you go into the doctor's office at the end. And that was actually inspired by the doctor's office from the 1929 flashback in season one. There's a doctor working on a double-headed pig in the basement. We wanted to get that. We ran out of time and money to get that. But I really wanted that in there. That space is representative of the murder house basement. Not exact, but loosely tied to that. We did the white brick. We had things that would tie it back to that. And all of the dressing in there was retro vintage 20s medical equipment to tie back to that. And that's not something most people would pick up on, but that's where my idea came from. Another tie into the original series. Mm -hmm. So the decision to move from the high school dance to this exterior space, was COVID a factor in that or was it strictly a creative decision? It was actually neither. The issue was we couldn't kill a bunch of kids at a high school. So that was a, it was more of a network thing. It, it was, you can't kill a bunch of kids at a high school. Like that's <laughs> not, that's not going to happen, you know, cause they were, they were mostly high school kids, right? They're the bullies or the people that are picking on Scarlett. And then there are kids that are not, that weren't picking on her, but are bystanders, wrong place, wrong time. They weren't comfortable with, with that storyline. So it had to change. Well, I really like what you guys came up with. I think it actually, what you guys did worked even better. So you guys were pushed in a nice direction on that. Yeah. I love it so much more than the dance would have looked great, but it wouldn't have been as cool as the event at, at the old zoo for sure. Well, so all of these complications we've talked about, as you mentioned earlier, that gave you lead in for episode three, which is drive in. But it itself is this very complicated set of the drive-in, all the cars, the space of the projectors and such. Talk to me a little bit about how that episode came together. The big search for us was the drive-in. That was the linchpin. That was the very first thing that we started looking for. And I was scouting that pretty early on with the location manager. There, There were not that many options, which helped. There were two main ones. And of the two, it was very clear which which one aesthetically would work for us. The challenge was coming up with concept art that would sell Ryan because the location photos weren't going to do it. In John Gray's words, it looks like a prison. There are these little guard shack booths where you enter and just horrible and tan color. And it, it was just all bad. So when I went out there and was scouting, I, I started to look around and there was there were several roads leading in, which was really great. because There were four different screens. So we created a new entrance. I thought, oh, well, this is great. This is a long run. We can bring him in here. So we need to now create the entrance booth. And I had found these really amazing vintage drive-ins from around the country. It's part of my mood boards, which gave me the inspiration to do this kind of deco style vintage ticket booth with these V-shaped um, supports that were metal. And we painted like a deep burgundy color and we added neon and we added signage and it just all came together in such a great way. So that was the concept art that we came up with. I, I shared that with my concept artist and then he drew it up. We put it in the photo and showed that to Ryan. And then the concessions building was a whole nother thing because it was just so drab and there just wasn't a lot of life to it. So we added an outdoor arcade and tables. 
We added neon to the whole building. We painted a stripe to give it some more life and color. We also had to add a jog at the end of the wall because there's a scene where the car crashes into the building. To do that safely, we needed a K-rail. We needed a fake wall that would crumble. We needed all of these things. So that was a way that we came up with, okay, with D, they can crash it here. They can run off here to this door, pick them up in the projection room stairwell. So a lot of logistics to figure out with that. But once we did the concept art with the ideas that we had, it sailed right through. And then we move forward. Then the big challenge being executing all of that at the drive-in, which by the way, has a swap meet every day. <laughs> so we were doing this with a massive swap meet going on around us with only a little section roped off for us to be able to do our work. The booth had to be installed on an overnight before we shot it. I think they started at 3 a.m. Wow. A couple of days in a row there. I mean, how did you guys manage to even get that filmed in that time frame? We shot four days at the drive-in. Okay. And we actually went back and did a fifth day. The booth, luckily, we were able to we were able to leave everything during the swap meets and then just like rope off around it. Initially, we were told everything was going to have to move every day, <laughs> which was very scary. But luckily, we were able to work that out. But it took us three days to get it going, to get it up. And that's not including the paintwork. We had the rabbit rabbit posters and the lighted boxes. And then the interior concessions was actually one of the reasons I loved it. It had this vintage color block of red and gold. And my decorator brought in these really great diamond plate tables and we leaned really into the retro. Our, our vibe was very 80s on this episode, which I grew up in the 80s. I love it. So leaning into a primary palette of red, yellow, and blue, it was a lot of fun to play in those colors and in that vintage aesthetic within the drive-in. And, and luckily the interior already had that. So we just leaned into that and added, and we used all these vintage movie posters that we got that were Fox movies. So you'll notice if you look around in the projection room and in the concession stand and in the projection room stairwell, there were all these vintage movie posters, really, really cool ones. I had a lot of fun picking those out. Are you using the actual projection room as well, or is that something you're rebuilding somewhere else? No, we built that on stage. The real projection room was actually not very big, and the equipment in there is extremely expensive because it wasn't a functional drive-in. The thought of banging into something or... <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> given, exactly. So we, we built that on stage, and it allowed us to make it bigger and have wild walls and if we needed to pull a window or a wall, we could do that stuff very easily, which was nice to have that control. My prop master and set decorator found this man who had all this vintage equipment. His name's Charles Massa. He's been advising all the major films with projection scenes since the last 70 years. He was our on-set consultant. He worked with Howard Hughes, Marlon Brando, and Tarantino. Wow. We had kind of the guy for this, which was fantastic. Yeah. So everything was very authentic. Everything was set up the way it needed to be and should be. And we had done a ton of research to make sure we got this right. So I, I love that because it feels accurate, but it still had this great mood to it and this great style. Another win, I think, for you guys on this one. Thank you. Yeah, it was awesome to see it come together. And then the other bit that was relevant to that is the 70s editing room. We have the old editing bay. So cool. I, lo I love that piece. I just fell in love with it. And the prop master sourced that from Charles as well. And we're trying to keep our, our sets together. This was kind of made me think of the shortcut thing you said before. So we were shooting the Alex theater for a bunch of the interior movie theaters and then using the exterior. We used the interior for the 70s flashback exorcist stuff. And then we used the exterior for the 1986 rabbit rabbit premiere. We did the editing room in the basement of the theater. They had this really cool 
a mechanical room. I just like the way it felt. So we wallpapered, we added some shelving and we built it out into this editing suite where you find the woman cutting her fingers off because she has watched the movie and it's done its thing. <laughs> that was a lot of fun as well. I love the research and the attention to detail that is required to do something period. Mm-hmm. You don't see as much of the room as I hoped for, but trust me, it was all there and it was all accurate. You know, at this point, moving through the series, once again, we're starting to pick up speed as far as how much time they're using to capture an episode and the time then that you have to prepare for the next. Tell me about the challenges with episode four, The Naughty List. Biggest challenge there was finding the house. We, we wanted something really specific. We wanted it big and modern and white, a little isolating, a little cavernous. When you look at a lot of these TikTokers and these like Sway LA and these houses of these guys, they're in these huge expansive mansions and they have these raging pool parties. So we needed several boxes to check to get the right thing. The one we found, which was quite perfect, we actually presented three options to Ryan, this one being my favorite. It had this really great late 60s contemporary architecture and we designed the interior using like a Scarface chic aesthetic for these guys. So my decorator found a lot of 70s and 80s pieces mixed in with more modern ones. And then we worked very hard not to over-decorate it because their houses are very sparse. They actually don't have a lot of stuff. So we didn't put a lot of stuff on the bookshelves and we didn't have too much furniture in the house just so it would feel accurate for what these guys are. And the best part of the house was the exterior pool was beautiful. And it had this upper, like a pergola where with a deck where they could sun. And we needed that someone had to jump in the pool. There were all these storylines that tied in. We also needed a roof where the Santa could look down. We were able to find all of these elements in this house, which was fantastic. And we did spend seven days there shooting it. It was really the, the main part of that episode was finding that house. And the most fun element for us was the body part tree at the end, I think. We looked at a couple different ways to do this and what it should look like. And the thing that Ryan gravitated to the most was a white tree with red lights, with very minimal red and silver ornaments. When then you get to the part at the end, the macabre display that the first responders find, it's a very stunning tableau because of the white and then the blood and the body parts, it really stands out in such a great way with the head on top of the mouth open. So that was a lot of fun. Let's move on to the next episode, Ball. Ball was was another one of my favorites. We decided to do a tone-on-tone color palette for this, which I haven't done before. It's very, very hip right now as well. I don't know what tone-on-tone means. Basically, a lot of the same colors overlapping. So our palette was beiges, creams, and blushes. So everything's tonal. And if you watch the episode, you'll see that's true for their wardrobe. It's true for the props. It's true for the set deck. It's true for the design. All the paint colors I chose. If you look at the prison visiting room, that's a really good example of it. I had two different colors of cream, top and bottom. He's in a a cream jumpsuit. She's in a cream outfit with a cream hat. Everything is cream. The only thing that isn't is the little signs above the phones that say, you'll be kicked out for bad contact, whatever it was. And the phones, right? Themselves were black with the silver. Everything else was cream in there. The laminate we picked for the counter and the dividers. And that's true for everything. And in Bernadette's apartment, I did a wallpaper and there were some, there were some greens and there was also some pinks, but it was muted, right? But the rest of the room was this pale creamy gray, but the furniture was all 
creamy. And then there were accents. Okay, there was a, a pink chair. There, we did a little bit of color there. We wanted to play a little bit outside of it in that set. But when you look at the main house and the nursery is another great example. I did a cream striped wallpaper and all the other walls were cream and the crib was cream and the art was cream and the chair was cream. So <laughs> everything is in that tone, which is interesting because you would think it would be boring, but it was actually quite beautiful. And what I loved about it was when you see the totem or when you see the actual demon, it's very jarring. It creates a nice juxtaposition between the evil and this environment. You've got this really wonderful kind of bucolic home, and then you've got this evil entity, and it really stands out in those cream on cream on cream spaces. Finding the house was the trickiest part for that as well, similar to TikTok, just because it was such a big element. And we needed something that exuded a lot of wealth, but still was contemporary enough for this young couple. We didn't want to do like a hummingbird ranch where it's the dark woods and the terracotta floors. And Eve, quick aside, when you said TikTok, that's the episode that episode four that ended up being called the naughty list, but they're the TikTok guys, yeah. right? That's the it's hard. I always have to remind myself it's the naughty list because we actually didn't have a title <laughs> for a little while. Uh-huh. So we were just calling it TikTok by the time we got our title. But the, the house we found was, you know, it was Spanish style. It was built in the twenties and it had been added to and modified and updated by the new owner, which created a bit of a modern feel with some of the more modern, the kitchen was added on the pool, these elements that weren't part of the original twenties house, which it gave it that right feel for this young couple and they're starting their family. You've had this muted palette for the totem and the demon to play against. At what point in the creative effort is a decision like that made? We were given the tone-on-tone directive very early on. It was something I think that Ryan had in his head since they concepted the episode. For me, when we designed the totem, because we did concept art for that, and then we had it 3D printed, and then we had it painted, the one that I gravitated to the most in my research was this prehistoric totem of the fertility god. And it was dark, and it felt sinister. So to me, that seemed like the perfect place to have that contrast. And Ryan agreed. And of course, we moved forward with having that dark, dark totem. So it did pop, right? And the floors were dark. It's not like the floors were light. When she does the ritual, she's sitting on a dark floor. But there are moments where she's standing in this cream space holding this very dark totem. And I think it's very jarring. And then the demon itself having dark red skin with the black horns. When you see him in that house and you see him in that nursery, it's like, you know, he's there. It's very shocking. And I think that that's great. Not hundred percent sure if that was intentional or not. I think it might've been a happy accident when it came to the demon. Well, it worked. Our next episode, episode six is feral and it's largely set at the in-story Kern Canyon National Park. Talk to me about that episode. So we actually scouted around LA first. We found a couple areas that were good, but we couldn't find all of them which is what made us look to Big Bear. And then once we went up to Big Bear and scouted, we realized, holy crap, we can get everything here. And it's amazing. It's so much better than these other pieces down in Los Angeles. So we made made the decision to shoot the whole episode up there. And we found all these fantastic sites. The camping site, we came across on an early scout and I saw that lake, that pond. And I was like, this is great for the hero campsite. It's so bucolic. The kid goes missing. It's going to be a great contrast to the horror that the parents are going to face. The DPN director loved it and agreed. And so we had our campsite. The ranger station was this really cool, it was like a mess hall for the campers up on this 
bluff looking down over the forest. It was fantastic. So that gave us our template for the set that we later built on stage. The growers camp was off the trail and kind of nestled back in the stand of trees. And there was a three wall log cabin that was part of it. And then a meadow next door. So that provided a really beautiful setting for the carnage. That is that scene. It was so fun to explore Big Bear and find these places where the ferals would be chasing them through the the trees at night and where the rangers were going to be attacked. And you had all these flashbacks, you had all these different scenes. So we were able to find a really nice range of locations and areas to get all these different scenes and keep it fresh. And we found a great clearing for the finale with the, we call it the throne of skeletons. It was actually initially scripted as a bone totem, a makeshift trophy of all their kills this kind of organic structure of skulls and, and, and bones. We found out about a week out from shooting that it needed to now be a throne. So my art director and I came up with a plan to design a chair. It has a welded frame covered in bones that would butt up against the tower that we already had to create the throne. And that's oh. how we, that's how we modified that. Cause we had it, it was built at that point. We, contracted this amazing special effects shop and they welded. I wanted it very organic and free flowing because they're, they're cannibals, they're ferals. They're not super intelligent. They're very instinctual. So this thing should feel a bit haphazard and thrown together. They put all the skeletons in. And then once we established it in the space, we added all this viscera and gore bits of flesh and things like that and added some blood. And it was was so fun. It was so great. I was so happy with how that looked. (laughs) This episode has a lot of large sets. And so that just seems like an additional challenge, particularly because at this point, you're on a very limited schedule as far as being able to get this stuff ready. Absolutely. We tried to find locations that were somewhat near each other to group our shooting days. And we did a pretty decent job, but it still required a lot of gators and a lot of equipment moving. But it went swimmingly. It went really well. We, we made our days and everybody was super happy with it. I think there was a bear sighting and there was also a mountain lion sighting. <laughs> I heard I was bummed. I missed that. Um, <laughs> but it was a lot of my favorite set of the episode is the interior ranger station, which we built on stage. Having the template of the existing exterior, we knew what our windows should look like. And we knew the general size and shape and scale of the set. And then I was free to play within that and chose this very dark wood paneling and a forest green accent wall. We did a lot of vintage fixtures and file cabinets and furniture. I was very inspired by my research in mood boards. I found this very eclectic cabins through my research. And I thought, well, that's really cool. Like I, I wanted a metal island for the kitchen that looked like a work table, maybe that had just been brought in. I wanted it to feel authentic and real and a bit vintage. It just, it felt right for the story and the character. And it was just so much fun to do it. And then we had this little back office, radio communications room is what we were calling it, where he's trying to call out and there's a feral on the ceiling that drops down on him, which was so fun. So we pulled that wall out so they could get that shot and she's on these wires and it was so cool to see it. It was such a great set and everybody was super happy. It felt very moody and spooky. And we had this really great trans light out the windows that tied into the location. And it just felt very real, which made me really happy. The series wraps up with episode seven, Game Over. But then bookending, we once again return to the murder house. Talk to me about episode seven. Seven was challenging because you had two, you're basically making two different episodes within, right? You've got your game and you've got the real world. So we needed a way to differentiate 
the murder house. And I was thinking about how to do that. And the one idea I came up with was to change the color of the stained glass. So when you're in the game, it's red. And when you're in the real world, it's green. And to me, that made sense because the game, it's evil. You know, you can't escape, right? It just, I looked at blue too, but red ended up being the winner. So that was one thing we did. The other thing was in the den. I thought, okay, we can do grass cloth. You know, it would be paint panels in the real world. It could be grass cloth in the game because we were leaning into the idea of the game feeling like the Harmons, the real world feeling like the new family just keeps it all clean and tidy. I thought, hmm, what if we do the murder mural in here? What if it's that? It's a game. We can do whatever we want. And I just love it so much. And we've only really ever seen it once in, in the first season. So that's what we did. We had it all printed and put up. And there are a couple scenes where the girls get attacked and where Ruby's in there where you see it in all its glory. And it's it's very jarring in, in such a great way. And then the furniture was very reflective of the Harmon's furniture. We found stuff that was very close to their things because the game is rooted in that reality of that first season. So we had all the vintage pictures up all of those types of things throughout the house. When you look at the exterior of the game version, it's lush and green, lying any of the evil inside, right? When they come up and you're on oh, the rose bushes are there and everything's gorgeous. When you're in the real version, we had, it looked very dead. So we covered the grass with dirt skins huh. and we added leaves and we replaced the hedges with dead bushes and the, the nice bush by the house, which is very green, we covered with dead branches. So we had to completely change the front of the house. It was a very big dress to get that done. We did it on a Sunday. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> um, the one saving grace was when we were flipping back and forth, we were able to not flip back and forth outside. I think we did it twice. We didn't do it multiple times. We did the interior multiple times. We ended up having actor availability other issues come up where it was every day the schedule was changing oh, wow. and I'd have to look at it and think about whether we could accomplish it and what it would take and, and who would have to come in at what time were they coming in at night? Were they coming in on a pre-call? So all of that was a consideration. So it was, it was very challenging in that way to jump back and forth in the house so many times, but we did do it. And we did have a distinction between the game and the real world, which I, I really enjoyed. And I don't know how many people picked up on the subtle changes. I didn't want them to be really obvious but just a bit unsettling to where you know something's different, but you're not quite sure. Because we start the episode with people coming to the house and we don't know it's a game at this stage. As you say, there's all of these elements hearkening back and yet it's not recreating the old look. It's different. It's a it's an updated and a sort of in-game look that you have to think about every single element and what is intentional for uh, homage back and then what is uh, modern and updated before we use the house in its real current version which is also later than everything else. That's that's a lot to keep track of, Eve. And it was, yes. We had a whole breakdown with scene numbers. And so we knew exactly what scenes, which look we were in, which kills happened where. We had to do a lot of wood lino to protect the house from blood. There were a lot of kills in the house. The floors are old and they're not sealed properly. So there's having actual blood, fake blood on that. It would seep in and it could ruin the floor. So we, we had a lot of protective work to do in there as well to keep the house safe. The basement set where we find the girls in the cage, we built on stage. So we get them coming down the stairs in the real location. And then we cut to the door we come through is, is a set on stage, which gave us a lot of freedom to pull walls, do the stunt work we needed. There's a lot of kills in there. And the idea for the cage was this wine cellar that had been converted to keep these girls. The main challenge for me was how, do, how does Rubberman and Piggy get into the cage with them? 
to slaughter them because we as the viewer and the gamers are seeing it. How does that happen? So we came up with the idea of the sliding door, almost like a silent door to where it could slide and they would enter. And we, as the viewer are looking and we see it and the girls don't see it. And it's that moment where you're like, no, girl. <laughs> and so, which was great. And the director loved it when I, when I had that idea and that's what we landed on. So they come in and the lights are flickering and, you know, they're murdered. And then they realize this is real. And they start to try to get out Infantata attacked. They get out into the landing and, and the rest goes from there. So it was a lot of fun to cultivate that. And I relied on the house for inspiration. The bay window down there is replicated from the real location to tie it in. And then the, the white brickwork also ties it into the basement look. So we worked really hard with my paint team to get that right, looking aged enough, the right tone and color of that. And then with set deck, the director really wanted the couple to have a bit of a journey to finding the girls. They didn't want it to be a straight shot. That's why I put them back in a jog. And it's why we built out the set deck in a way to create a little bit of a labyrinth, not much of one, but a bit. They're traveling, they're traveling, they hear them, where are they? And then they reveal the girls. And I also wanted that straight shot from the door to the bay window because I thought it just looked really nice with the lighting coming in. And so that was a lot of fun to do that set. I was super, super happy with how it turned out. So revisiting the murder house is a nice bookend, but it's not the only set in the episode. Talk about some of the other work for episode seven. So we had the Michelle's house, the mom who created the game. It was another important set for us. And the big challenge there was finding a house that would be different than murder house, provide a contrast, but not representing a style we've already established earlier in the series. We didn't want to do the same thing twice. So we found this little gem of a house in Ladera Heights, uh, mid-century modern, but updated with these industrial accents. So it had a very unique feel to it and really beautiful lines, the really high skylights in the in the living room and, and the brick fireplace. It was really interesting and cool without being too similar to Murder House. So that's what we landed on for our house. And it had a nice open floor plan as well, where you could travel from the living room to the dining room to the kitchen, had a great flow to it for the scene when she's talking with her son. Setting up, obviously, we brought our set deck in. We wanted to make it feel very relatable. We wanted her to feel like a working mom, right? A single mom. So we showed all that through the different elements that we brought into her space. One little note is the father's house that we see later was actually the master bedroom in that house that we converted into his living room to help us with making a move or having a secondary location. And it was different enough and it looked different enough that we felt confident doing that would be okay. It was also a night scene, short scene, they're watching TV. So that was something that we decided to do there. And then the other big set would be the condo. Mm -hmm. House gets burned down, condo goes up. Finding a condo that was the right scale and believable that could go on that lot of land did prove to be a bit tricky. I bet. But ultimately we found it in West Hollywood. It was a great building, houses on either side. So it felt very residential. It felt like it worked. And what we did for the exterior there is we brought yellow rose bushes out front. It's a subtle little tie-in to the murder house, which is something I've been doing since the first episode. So that, that was a nice little tie-in, very subtle. We used the downstairs of the unit in the actual location and we dressed that for Scarlet and we used that. The bedroom and the bathroom were built on stage. Mm. We had, we had some issues with timing, actors, other things, and we ended up having to punt that stuff to stage. So we found out kind of late that we were doing that, but we designed it and we got it built and we got it ready. And I found this really cool concrete wallpaper that was black and gray that 
felt a little bit of a tie-in to Scarlet's bedroom in the second episode. It felt a little bit in that lane. And I really wanted that contrast, the white with the black, very stark, a bit cold. We, we warmed it up a bit with our furniture and our textiles. But I, I really love the way that that wallpaper just, it's, it's very jolting in a great way. And then she reconnects with Ruby in that set and Ruby's in the rubber suit. So I love that black on black. And then the bathroom, it was a fun opportunity to play, to, to make it symmetrical and have the tub in the middle with two windows on either side. Again, in both the bathroom and the bedroom, we had white roses out the windows. We wanted to really tie that back into the, to the murder house in a subtle way. So looking back over the entire seven episode run, each episode, with the exceptions we noted, it's standalone story. Talk to me about the challenge of all of these still being integral pieces of the Ryan Murphy American Horror Story universe. My feeling is Ryan Murphy is the linchpin that holds it all together. We have a concept meeting with him for every episode. And in that concept meeting, he will tell us how he sees the episode. It won't be on every single set or thing. There'll be specific things that he's passionate about and he has ideas about and think other things he doesn't. And that's really where you take your direction from, from him in those moments. I don't know how it works on American Horror Story, but I imagine it's somewhat similar. And I think having him at the helm, cultivating his vision, handing that down to us to then play within that vision is the glue that holds it all together and makes it cohesive. And additionally, on this series, the coordination that has to happen between the departments is more involved than I've, I've ever experienced in my career. You know, the set design, the production design, the set decoration, props, wardrobe, everything has to work together to create that cohesive vision. It has to be all dialed in. If even one thing is just off palette, it's not going to work. That is how we were able to have everything be so tight. And so together on this was the many, many meetings with the different department heads talking about the palette and, and staying true to those directives that we had. So season two, Eve, are you planning to come back? We don't have our official start date and we haven't crewed up yet, but I'm really, really looking forward to it. Do you know anything about when filming will start? Or are there any other details you can share, things we can expect? The information I have is that prep will likely start early in the new year, which should put filming right around the same time, probably early spring. Well, in the meantime, what other projects are you working on or where else can we see your work? I've actually been enjoying the time off. It was <laughs> such a such a tough show that I, I went home and visited family and, and now I'm catching up with friends and doing all of the life stuff that gets left behind when you work. My agents have me out on a bunch of stuff and it would be great if I could book something else before the series starts back up, but to be determined. Well, Eve, I'm glad we caught you when you had some time to spend with us. Really enjoyed uh, talking about this series. Thanks so much for the time today. Thank you. Really enjoyed being on. And season nine continues. If you're new to the podcast, I hope you'll check out some other episodes. It's easy to peruse the entire catalog at the website, below the line, one word, dot biz. That's B-I-Z. All episodes of the podcast are also now on IMDb, so you can cross-reference the film credits of my guests. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and rate us if you like what you hear. If you've got questions or comments, you can send email to skid, S-K-I-D, at below the line, dot biz. If you're on Facebook, you can find photos and other behind-the-scenes materials at Podcast Below the Line. And finally, you can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram. It's at Pod Below the Line. Thanks to Curtis Five for our music and John Juan for our logo. 
The logo is available on t-shirts, mugs, and stickers at redbubble.com. Regular listeners, I hope you enjoy the season. We've got a lot of fun stuff planned. Tell your friends. We'll be back again next week.